unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and chips and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We have a terrific chat room with some very special folks that join us every week. So don't miss out. Join the chat room today. Okay, Rav, it's time for you to invite everyone to the chat room and tell us all what makes your chat room just so special. Well, it's special because we're in there, and it's great company. It's, you know, that you've got a good mix of people that come in there. You know, some are highly educated. Some may not have the formal education, but they bring a great deal of wisdom. So if you have a question, there's normally someone there that will provide answers. There's normally several someones there that will give you answers it's a great place to hang out and learn a whole lot more so do come join me that is at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat get some great questions out of there as well as some answers all right in our spotlight of the week segment this week we turn to the subject of collectivism According to Harry Triandis of the University of Illinois, a collectivist society places emphasis on collective goals, while an individualistic society finds it acceptable for a person to weight the importance of their personal goals. America, excuse me, America has long been thought of as an individualistic nation with a scaffold of individual freedoms that provide for entrepreneurial opportunities, I'll get it said, together with the inherent risk, and this has led to many innovations and innovators such as Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. Collectivist societies include nations like China, Korea, Japan, Brazil, and Argentina, by contrast. Research has shown that collectivist countries have much higher rates of conformity to group opinion as compared to individualistic countries. As such, people from a collectivist society seem to be more susceptible to group influence. Does this matter? Should it matter? Is it something of any real concern or import to us? Well, line length studies, studies where a target subject decides which line in a set of lines is longest, have all revealed that regardless of the society that you are from, your decision can be influenced by confederates, persons recruited by the researcher to pretend they are target subjects. So if several confederates consistently choose a different line as longer than the one chosen by the target, very quickly the target will deny their own senses and comply with the group's decision. Now here's the kicker. It takes many more confederates to obtain compliance from a target if they are from an individualistic society than from a collectivist. In a collectivist society, two confederates will often produce compliance, and three will almost always produce that same compliance. So in other words, look, you're there, you're, you're looking at lines, and you're being asked to determine which line is the longest. You think there are two, maybe three other people like yourself also making the decision while a researcher monitors the four of you, say. 
Well, if the three are consistently choosing a shorter line as the longer line, it doesn't take long before you conform. And the more you're from a conformist society, the fewer people it takes to influence you that way. All right. Many argue that our society is becoming more and more collectivist, and they often insist that this is a good thing. Is it? Think about that. I'd love your thoughts on this one, so email me or join me on Facebook. Ravinder, what do you think? You know, I think this is a a huge subject. Um, The fact is, you know, the proof can be in the pudding. America is only... 200 and so you know years old um, and look how far it's come and the development and the innovation that has come out of it you know the fact is people around the world want to emigrate to America you know it is the land of opportunity so you know that says the most for it you know we have the comforts the standard of living across the board is higher than most other places and that all comes through um, the individual striving to be the best, not conforming, not agreeing. You know, I mean, when you talk about collectivism, you have, you know, you have the group, but you've also got, you know, the older cultures where family is the most important. The elders are most important, you know. Um, no, I'm definitely, I think, for the more individual. And then from a spiritual perspective, I happen to think... Um, our individual individuality is our gift you know maximizing that individuality is what we are supposed to be here for when you just follow everyone else and turn your brain off and you know um I, I I, I, life becomes dull i hear you on the other hand you know you got to think about these 25 year olds that today are being asked to buy insurance at some pretty costly you know pricey Tickets because, hey, look, even though you don't need the health insurance by buying it, you're subsidizing the people that do, you know, that's kind of a, well, you know, everything has its ups and its downs, doesn't it? All right. Again, I'd love your thoughts on it, so, you know, join me on Facebook or uh, email me at Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. All right, every week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our guest was Caroline Sutherland, and she shared the value of detoxing the body. Molly wrote, I listened to your show with Caroline Sutherland the other day, and I'm fascinated once again, by the variety of guests and information you bring to us all. Thank you for doing what you do. Georgiana wrote, You dig into everything and are still quite respectful to all of your guests. I hope I'm respectable as well. (laughs) Sometimes it may feel a bit uncomfortable for your guests, a few minutes here and there, with some in-depth questioning. But so what? Anyone putting out info should have substance to back it up. Isn't getting as close to truth as we possibly can the basis for your program? There are so many other programs with overly polite sugar coating. Your program is unique. Well, thank you, Georgiana, for your thoughtful feedback. I genuinely appreciate your support. Logan wrote, love your work, Eldon. Grateful for all you do for the betterment of mankind. Wendy wrote, I love listening to your show on 12radio.com. Well, thank you, Wendy, and for all of you out there, our show is syndicated and airs on several networks, and we hope you will tune in and join us on at least one of them. So check out the days and the times that we air by just simply going to provocativeenlightenment.com. 
Margaret wrote, partway through your book, Choices and Illusions, loving the resonance of words that speak to all parts of the individual. Thank you so much for the total inclusive language and for publishing a gift for each and every one who is feeling overwhelmed with 21st century overload and just wish to slow down and smell the non-genetically modified roses. With gratitude, Dr. Taylor, thank you. Well, thank you, Margaret. What do you think of that, Ralph? Non-genetic. <laughs> Dave wrote, Mind Programming was a very good read. Visited a library, found it, and spent hours reading it. Easy to read, plus back with great insights. Laura wrote, Need to have you back on my radio show. Your inner talk audio has seriously changed my life. Well, that's what it's supposed to do, Laura. We're glad for that. And I'm happy to come back anytime. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your email to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. We can't get all of your letters on the air, but they do impact our programming, and once again, I both appreciate and thank you for your feedback and continued support. Now to this week's show. In today's episode, we're going to once again examine how we break through self-imposed limitations. Limitations that hold us back, keeping us stuck when there is so much more that we want to experience in our lives. We will examine the questions, who we are, where we want to be, and how we can go about accomplishing that objective. And once more, we'll use the real-life story of a famous and successful person to help us map our path. So the question... How did I get where I am and how do I get where I want to be becomes our central inquiry in this episode of Breaking Limitations. Breaking Limitations was originally designed to be a telecourse or webinar, but the interest was so keen that we decided to make it available as a worldwide radio broadcast. All right, this week's special episode of Breaking Limitations features an incredible woman. Marcy Shimoff is a number one New York Times bestselling author, celebrated transformational teacher and expert on happiness, success, and unconditional love. Is there anything else to be an expert on worthwhile? <laughs> no. Probably not. Her books include the international bestsellers Love for No Reason and Happy for No Reason. She's also the woman's face of the biggest self-help book phenomenon in history as co-author of the Chicken Soup for the Woman's Soul series. With total book sales of more than 15 million copies worldwide in 33 languages, Marcy is one of the best-selling female nonfiction authors of all time. She's also a featured teacher in the film and book sensation, The Secret. Marcy's copy states that she is dedicated to helping people live more empowered and joy-filled lives. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Marcy Shimoff. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I love provocative enlightenment. Yeah, well, we love you, too. You know, you're always right there. <laughs> in fact, you're one of my my favorite people. And I have to tell you that because, you know, you are, you, you're a person that seems to just be able to walk your talking. And I don't know how you find joy in everything that you do. Happiness and a smile always for anything and everything. But you do do that. So... Um, let's let's do this. Our goal is to develop a clear picture as to how the truly helpful and successful people in life, like yourself, have gained the success they have today. In doing this, we will attempt to trace a path that leads from where you were to where you are today. So to begin with, Marcy, 
please tell us about your early years. I mean, what was school like for you? Were you popular, a member of a group, a loner? Or how do you see yourself now when you look back on it? Well, Eldon, it's, um, you know, there's that saying, we teach what we most want to learn. And I really appreciate your comments about how I, uh, you know, how happy I am, because the truth is, I am happy, and I absolutely was not happy. Um, I was born with existential angst. I, I came out of the womb an unhappy camper. And I had a really wonderful family. still do have a wonderful family. Um, just very loving parents, and everything was great on the outside. But I felt this enormous pain on the inside. I felt the suffering of humanity, if you will. I remember when I was about five years old, there was a TV show that was famous called Romper Room. Did you ever watch Romper Room? I did. Yep. So I remember watching Romper Room, and all my friends, a couple friends were over with me watching it, and they were just playing and having fun, and I was feeling in my heart, how could they have so much fun when there's so much suffering in the world? It was this very... um, very sort of morose child. And I asked my, my parents from an early age, you know, what's the purpose of life? You know, what's God? And they did their best, but they never could really satisfy my, my yearnings. And um, I had a very dramatic turning point when I was about 12 years old. I was, I was a chubby little girl, so that was always troublesome to me. I remember my brother was 10 years older than I was, and he was a great big brother, except that he used to always tease me for being chubby. And so I had this heavy-duty, low self-esteem and whole issue around being chubby. But, uh, but I was really a seeker. And when I was 12 years old, I decided, I think it was, uh, actually maybe it was 11 years old, it was the sixth grade, I wanted to go out in my backyard and suntan. I, I grew up in California, so I was a big kind of suntan girl. And this was, um, so I went in and got some baby oil. It was in the 70s, early 70s, so we were not into sunscreen. And I went and got it, baby oil, and then I went and grabbed a, a book to read. And I went into my sister's bedroom. My sister's 12 years older than I am. And I grabbed the skinniest book I could find because I was a very slow reader. And I took it outside. I didn't even look at the title. I just, it was a skinny book. So I slathered myself up in baby oil, and I opened up this book, and I started reading. And in the first five minutes, I was in tears. The book was Siddhartha, and it was about, uh, yeah. you know, this Siddhartha, man's journey uh, of awakening, of enlightenment. And I just burst into tears because I realized that other people understood this quest that I was on. And, um, and that was kind of the beginning of getting my hands on everything related to meditation and personal growth and and. Yeah, I was. I did encounter groups when I was in high school, and and I, to me, that story is actually kind of the epitome of what my life was like because it was the juxtaposition of this very material, you know, getting a suntan. I wanted to be popular. I wanted to be a cheerleader. I wanted to be with the in group, and I I was always never quite there. I was always, I, I I tried out for cheerleaders three years in a row, and each year I was the first runner up. And, you know, I was just was never quite in that that externally popular thing, um, but I really wanted it, and that was the 
you know, slathering myself up in baby oil. But then I also had this very deep inner quest as well and for spirituality. And, and that has really stayed with me throughout my life. But then, let me ask you this. You, you come in, in into the world, you say, with existential angst. Um, nothing in your environment uh, that uh, bombarded you with the woes of the world? I mean, wh- where did you learn about the woes of the world? Was I mean, yeah. did you have news? Did you have media? Was somebody in the family involved in law enforcement or in the military? Or right. How did you well, identify was, the woes of the world? Yeah. Um, I grew up in San Mateo, California, in uh, the, you know, ultimate suburban life, in an upper-middle-class right. family. My dad was a dentist, self-made man. Um, my, uh, you know, I think that we, we always had conversations at the dinner table, and because my brother and sister were 10 and 12 years older than I am, you know, there were, I was always around adult conversations. Um, mm-hmm. There was, the Vietnam War was going on when I was, um, uh, you know, young. I was born in 1958, so I was 10 when the Vietnam War was going on, and um, my brother was up for the draft. And um, you know, I was I was very exposed to all of that. But I'm I'm going to go out on a limb here. I, I'm I, I hope it's okay that I'm being really honest. Is it okay no, if no, I? Yeah. Okay. No, it's more than okay. We love it. All right. Well, I believe that I came in with a very. Um, deep sort of collective um, cellular memory of I, I was born Jewish and um, and I believe that I carried some of the angst of of you know sort of the my ancestors in myself gotcha. and I definitely remember um, feeling a connection to the Holocaust um, you know I also do believe in past lives and and uh, feel that I came in with some very deep old old uh, pain to heal in this life and uh, of of numbers of lifetimes of of various kinds of challenging situations. I mean, I I've had experiences of you know being during the Inquisition or experiences of uh, during the Holocaust, and so I think that some of that was was what I came here to heal and some of the suffering from birth. That would make sense. And, you know, past life or not past life, Richard Dawkins would talk about the memes in our genes and how we can bring those memories forward, you know. And many Jewish people that I've spoken to have had uh, the kind of angst that you're describing there. Okay, so now Siddhartha, which, you know, you just happened to hit on what's got to be... If it's not number one, it's definitely number two of my all-time favorite books. Yeah. Herman Hess, you know, the the Pulitzer-winning novelist that wrote Siddhartha, essentially shows us a story of someone who, you know, becomes the ascetic, becomes the guru, becomes the master in, in all disciplines, only to find that they're not what being awake is truly about. They're, they're, they're just disguises of a form of self-alienation. Settles himself on a river as a river guide to be betrayed by his son um, and to just find a way of accepting it all as it flows naturally his way. And that is how the book concludes. Do you, you said, you see your life as following in that path. 
So I have to ask you, do you feel that allowing life to just bring you the river is the way to spirituality? Mm, what a beautiful question. Um, I... <clears throat> I actually uh, learned a little formula, probably when I was in my early 20s, um, of, of life. You know, I call it the miracle formula. It's kind of the formula for how to, have mir- how to have a miraculous life. And it's three steps. It's intention, attention, and no tension. I love it because it rhymes. And I think it's actually the combination of all three. Intention being clear about what you want. And clear about what you want from your soul, not from your ego. But I believe that each of us is here on the planet with a particular soul, you know, soul calling, soul intentions. So to be clear on your intentions in life, to put your energy behind it, and that means your attention, thoughts and your words and your feelings and your actions, and then to let go and be in that state of no tension, that state of surrender, of grace. And it's, so it's kind of a co-creative dance with life where, where we're not just, you know, all, you know, completely, uh, it's not a, it is a state of 100% surrender, but in that state of 100% surrender, there's also our intention and attention, our energy that goes towards it. Does that make sense? It, it makes perfect sense to me. You were a major player in The Secret, and The Secret is taking a lot of gaff for, uh, you know, uh, in ways promulgating the notion that I can sit around, I can visualize, uh, you know, success. I can I can create my vision board. I can, you know, say my affirmations, and I and I really don't have to do a lot else. You know, it's just a matter of that I'm entitled to it, and I can I can create it by by just visualizing it. I I just heard what you said: intention, attention, no tension. And I, I've got to ask you now, that does not imply, does it, Marcy, that I can give my attention in my armchair, create my you know, vision map, and go back to my armchair with no tension and have things happen? Well, Ellen, I can only speak from my own personal experience, and I can say that is absolutely not the way it works. <laughs> Good. Wonderful. There I love is to hear that, that element Tell me action. how it works. I mean, it hasn't worked that way for me. Um, and for everybody that I've seen who's created success or happiness, and those are different, and I'm hoping, I'm sure we're going to get to talk about the difference between happiness yes, and are. success. But absolutely, action is a part of it, and that's the attention piece. Attention doesn't just mean your thoughts. And it doesn't just mean your words. It doesn't just mean visualizing. It means action. You know, that's how we put our energy into motion. You know, it, our attention is energy, you know, and putting that into motion is our action. So I've certainly taken a lot of action over my life in the direction to serve my intentions. All right. I'm glad you cleared that up. Cleared it up right away. Now, pursuing your personal story just a little bit more before we get into your work. It's obvious that spirituality is important to you. Um, I'm going to ask, you know, how important is it? And, um, you know, define your your idea of what spirituality is for us. Mm. Wow. That's a hard... Uh, so, the first part's an easy answer. Um, how important is it to me? The most important thing. Absolutely, unquestionably, in my life, 
my spiritual awakening, spiritual growth is the most important thing. I think it's why we're on the planet. Um, what do I define as spiritual? The spiritual to me is feeling, knowing, experiencing, and living from my connection to the greater energy of life, and that's whatever you call it, whether it's God, the divine, nature, creative intelligence, that that power that is bigger than than our in than than any of us. And so, you know, another version of that would be awakening to the truth of who we all are. I believe that that is our essence, is this divinity, and that our job in life is to remove the blocks to the experience of that truth or essence. I know that sounds really airy-fairy, but it's really, uh, you know, I know we're going to get to talk about the real bones of that, what that really means on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis. But yeah, but we're going to have to hold it. We've got a hard break, and I've actually passed it. So we'll oh come dear, back to that okay. in a minute. Right. We're speaking with Marcy Shimoff about her life, teachings, and books. You can learn more about Marcy by visiting her website, happyfornoreason.com. Remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up after a few words from some of our friends. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in a funhouse? Only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto the path leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Elton Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free from your current perceptions and begin your journey to how high is up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be, 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 whisper words of wisdom. You know, I think that song has got to be the number one song most often chosen by our guests and you chose that guest well welcome back if you just joined us we're speaking with marcy shimoff about her life teachings and books we ask our guests for up to three songs that really have meaning in their lives their life songs if you will this often provides some interesting insight into who they really are Now, we just played some of Let It Be by the Beatles. Why is this song important to you, Marcy, and how does it tell us about who you are? Oh, it's so funny. Years ago, I had a birthday party, and um, what I did was everybody was supposed to bring the song that most reminded them of me. 
and then I had a friend sing them, and I had to guess who brought that song. Do you know that probably half the party brought that song? <laughs> wow. And the reason um, that it's such a meaningful song to me is that, you know, I, I told you earlier that formula of intention, attention, and no tension. Right. And I think everybody's good at one of at a couple of those, but really bad at one of them. And for me, it was the no tension that I'm really bad at. I don't let go easily. I don't let it be easily. I haven't had a lot of trust in life in the past. It's been a journey for me to grow in that. And so let it be for me is the um, is my journey of learning to trust life, to let it be. Um, I have a very deep connection with Mother Mary. Now, I know that in, it's said in the song that perhaps the Mother Mary that Paul was referring to was his own mother, who was right. named Mary. Indeed it was. We, we've actually fleshed that one out already with someone that spoke to him. So we, we know that that's the truth. But go on. Yeah. But it, so regardless, for me, the, uh, the universal Mother Mary or the image of the Divine Mother in any form, whether it be through... Kuan Yin, which is the uh, you know the uh, the Asian version of of Mother Mary, if you will, the the mother, the goddess of compassion, or whether it be the Indian goddesses of Lakshmi, the mother, the divine mother form of life is really what I most connect with, and I um, so that song for me is is about about letting go, letting it be in life, and trusting the, the Divine Mother aspect of life. A beautiful sentiment. I like that. Before the break, we were talking about spirituality and the meaning of spirituality and, and um, you know, just exactly what it meant to you. Uh, I don't want to cut you off, so if there was something, some thought that you were about to develop, you, you just jump in there. But here's my question. Many people today seem to look at spirituality um, not as a way to live so much as a way to escape. It, mm. you know, assuages anxiety, it, it, right. it soothes the tension, um, and, and, and so forth. And we see, repeatedly, we see, you know, individuals that run from a tradition, uh, whether it's you know Catholicism or Judaism or Sikhism or you name it, they run from a tradition because it fails them in some way, and they seek a more general uh, frame of reference. So as opposed to religion, you know they try on spirituality. My question, Marcy, is: Is spirituality does does a duty come with spirituality in your view? Or is it really just um, an acceptable escape mechanism? Mm, what a great question. You know, uh, certainly it can be whatever people make of it. <laughs> and I've seen it all. Um, I, may I share a little bit of my own journey on this particular Please, question? Please, that's, that's why we're here. Please. Great. Um, so I, you know, as I said, I was, a seeker from the get-go, always asking my parents about God, and I felt a really deep connection to the Jewish tradition, um, but I didn't feel so much the answers in terms of my own personal practice. I, I didn't quite get that from that. But I had a very, very, another very cool experience that happened to me, this time in the eighth grade. 
Um, I stayed home from school one day. I, I wasn't sick, but I just didn't feel like going to school. I didn't quite feel well, and that had never happened before, so my mom let me stay home. Um, I mean, I was a good student and all that, so it wasn't like I was, you know, just trying to get out of school. I just kind of right. didn't feel like going that day. And I remember she went out to the grocery store, and I was home alone, and I turned on the TV in my parents' bedroom because they had, I got to sit up in bed and watch TV. Um, and it came on to a channel that I didn't, that we didn't get. And on there was the Phil Donahue show, and on it was a little Indian guru sitting on this couch in a white robe. And his name was Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And he was the person who brought the um, Transcendental Meditation to right. to the West, and in fact was the guru to the Beatles. And I was just in India last uh, couple weeks ago, and I was in the meditation hut that John Lennon and Paul McCartney used to meditate in at Maharishi's ashram. But anyway, so this is 1971. I'm in eighth grade, and I see Maharishi, and he is, uh, again, I burst into tears because everything that he's saying makes complete sense to me. And I realize that I am here for this, this journey that he's describing. And I didn't understand that there was a meditation practice that went with it. He'd written a book called The Science of Being and Art of Living, so I wrote down the title of that book on a piece of paper. And as soon as the show was over, I called up every bookstore and library in San Mateo, California, and nobody had heard of the book, and that was it. I didn't know how to order a book (laughs) at that point. And so I put the little piece of paper away in a drawer. Three years later, I was 16, And I'm walking through downtown San Mateo, and I see a poster that says, Life is Here to Enjoy, and on it is a picture of Maharishi. And it talks about an introductory lecture that that week. And I go to the introductory lecture, and I learn Transcendental Meditation that weekend. And I ended up uh, becoming a teacher of Transcendental Meditation when I was 19, and I spent many, many years teaching meditation. And it was a godsend for me. It really deeply changed me. It was the first thing. I, I, I had low-grade depression up until I started meditating. And when I started meditating, it really helped tremendously. And I can say, Eldon, that I've seen many people who have used meditation, not necessarily TM, but any form of spirituality or meditation, as a way to escape the world. And you can, you know, see them. You can tell them they're walking around completely, you know, in their spaced-out you know, kind of world and and trying to avoid life. I don't believe that that's what life is about. I believe that life is about embodying our spirituality. And so that I've also known many, many people who've used meditation, including TM, and have, have allowed it to transform their lives in a way that opens them up to that that essence of truth that we talked about before the break, about, you know, our divinity inside. So I think that you know, it's it's very individual, and if somebody's using any kind of spirituality as an escape, then that's not true spirituality. Okay, cool. You know, and I'll buy that all the way. Uh, I don't think we come into the world so we can uh, forget about the world and pretend it doesn't exist. You know, we no, are agents of action. So, yeah, and there's a responsibility to, that. Go ahead. I'm not. Well, this what, is our saying? place to actually be able to act out our spirituality, to bring our, that, you know, the ultimate of spirituality, I think, is love, and to bring that love into action. And, you know, know, that's our life, 
it's been said that at the end of our lives we're asked one question. We have kind of a final exam. This is for people who report back after having had a near-death experience. We have a one-question final exam, and the question is, how much did you learn to love? And so if this is a lesson lifetime, then, you know, I don't think we get to cram for that physical that uh, final exam at the very end. I think it's about living it and really, really how much we're able to love, true love, not just dependent kind of love. Right, yeah. and, and that's, you know, where I wanted to go next here, because, oh, of course, you're the expert on it. But but for a second, let's let's look at love. Okay. When when most people think about love, you know, today you're going to think about the passionate romantic love, or perhaps you're going to think about unconditional love, you know. I, like you love a child who may neglect you, uh but nevertheless, you you know you you endear them at any rate, okay. But my question approaches a different kind of love, and so I'm going to ask you about this, okay. For years, as you know, I was involved in law enforcement, and you can see some pretty heinous things mm. from that end of the world. Sometimes you may see somebody. Well, let me let me change it a little bit. You may see someone hurt an animal unnecessarily just for fun, uh, do something evil uh, to an animal. Animals are something you love, and love fires within you a, a sort of rage about the conduct of the person who would do such a thing. Is that the opposite side of the coin to love? Or am I out to lunch, Marcy? It has nothing to do with love. Uh, it's just some retributive mechanism that's Darwinian in its nature that causes us to become excited uh, unnecessarily, perhaps, when someone does something like cut the ears and the nose off of their 14-year-old bride because they failed to displease them. Mm-hmm. You, this is, I love how deep you go, Eldon. <laughs> this is not your normal interview, <laughs> and I love that. Uh, so, ultimately, I think, you know, love means many different things. Ultimately, I think real definition of love for me is an unconditional state of of love that doesn't depend on any circumstances. It's part of the essence of who we are. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be perhaps anger or, you know, any other emotion superimposed on top of it. Um, but I, let, let me go to an example that I can think of, because I, I, I don't, you know, live in this state of unconditional love where, where you know, I don't, I, I'm, um, again, I'm teaching what I most want to learn about when I speak about unconditional love. And I, I studied this in, in Love for No Reason. I interviewed 150 love luminaries, people who I considered to be experts in the area of love. And so let me just use an example for this of the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama, who I've had the honor of getting to meet and, and be in a small room with, um, he emanates love. He really has got the, you can feel it in his presence. It's, it's quite palpable. And here's a man who obviously has had seen atrocities happen to, to, to him, to his country. Um, and, and I don't, I think, 
I don't think that um, he he doesn't get upset by. Uh, of course, he gets upset by that. You know, in the same way that you're speaking about being upset if if a dog or an animal is abused or a 14 year old girl has her nose. Cut your off. child. You just think about your child for a minute. How you might yeah. respond if your child is a victim of some, you know, heinous deed. Is you know. Uh, and and it is your love that's attached to that, and and you're right. The Dalai, I don't mean to interfere here, but the Dalai Lama is quite an activist, and I admire that. Yeah, so I I think that you can still experience love. You know the basic love of what life is. You know, and still see that things are done that are out of alignment with that love. That are just you know we might say wrong, that are just not, um, you know, not not reflecting that kind of love. And what I would say is that the Dalai Lama would probably see actions like that taking place from somebody who felt disconnected from love. Those are the results of people acting who are disconnected from the experience of love. So would he practice forgiveness? Yes, I believe he definitely does. Would he practice compassion? Yes, he would. That doesn't mean that he wouldn't also, you know, be upset by it, but I think that he would choose to channel that upset in a, in a way that was perhaps different than most people would. So, bottom line to my question, if I got this right, is sometimes love can actually seed emotions that are really not what we think of as pure love. Yes, I guess I would say that. I'm not 100% sure that I would, you know, I, I yes, I guess. You see, where, I, where I'm trying to get, Marcy, is, you know, there there's a lot of talk about unconditional love. And, you know, I understand that as a construct. But unconditional love means that I would love regardless of the activity, the action, etc. That's how we think of God loving us, including loving a serial killer. So where I'm trying to go is, is that really a fair prescription for something that we can expect of a human being, that kind of unconditional love? Or isn't, doesn't love itself and gender within it uh, a proprietary interest in fairness, in integrity, well, in in human rights, and human rights for all. I, I, I don't think it's either or. <laughs> you know, I think that love encompasses, it can coexist with the um, frustration of injustice. I think it can coexist, you know, I, I, when you say, are you, are you loving the serial killer? You know, I, you may love the humanity in them, and there is humanity in every person, but you sure. certainly don't love their actions. You certainly don't condone their actions. I don't think that love necessarily means that you're condoning the action. It means that you're not giving up your own experience of love, even in the midst of somebody that is not acting 
from love. You can still go, this is wrong, you know, I, I, you know, as the Dalai Lama is an activist still. He's not laying down and saying, okay, this is all right to, to, um, to you know, treat my country this way. Right. Um, but he's not doing it from a place of anger, right. ideally. He's doing it from a place of compassion and forgiveness. So I think that it's 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 kind of a both and in if if you can, you know. Yeah, I I, I actually that. think your idea that they're not mutually exclusive is an idea I can wear with some comfort, um, understanding that of course the, then the caveat is, um, I I I may not be happy <laughs> about. Uh, right what a person is doing in any way, shape, or form, but I will respect them at a deeper level. Um, and in some day, maybe I'll be able to call that love. But I understand so, what you're saying. If not love, forgiveness, or compassion. I think people get confused because they think, okay, if I forgive somebody, that means I'm condoning what's happened. It doesn't. It means you're freeing yourself yeah. from the the holding on and clutching of the severe anger that's only hurting you. You know, I don't think that we need anger to fuel our actions of, um, right, of you know, trying to create justice. No, I totally agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. And, um, all right, let's, let's move on. Thanks for taking the time to dissect that a little bit. Sure. We like to do that kind of thing here at Provocative Enlightenment. Let's get back to you, all right? Okay. So, you're a TM teacher at the age of 19. Yes. Today, you're this super successful author, this expert on probably uh, a triad that folks could think of as the most important three things that they could learn in life. So, with that in place, how do you think about you today? I mean, what are your current goals and ambitions, and when did you decide you'd made it? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> This is a big question here. Um, uh, so uh, I'm afraid I'm going to have to go back to another story, if I may. No, oh, yeah, please. We love the stories. Okay. So I grow up. I'm, I am unhappy. I'm very fortunate because I have a, a, a happiness role model in my father. My father passed away at age 91 seven years ago, was the happiest person on the planet, um, you know, just woke up every morning with a big smile on his face and I remember driving down the road with him and as, as I'm a teenager and I say to him, okay dad, what's your best advice for life? And he looks at me and he says four words. He says, honey just be happy and I throw my arms up into the air in frustration. I said, okay dad, that's easy for you to say. You were born that way. I wasn't. What do I do? And he thinks for a moment and then looks at me and says four more words. He says, honey, I don't know. <laughs> and that's when I realized some people are born happy. They have a high happiness set point. That's what, you know, researchers have now found is they've got this high happiness set point. I wasn't mm -hmm. one of those people. And so I really pursued what do I think I need to be happy? And, you know, I started meditating, and that was part of it. But I set some goals for myself. I thought I, when I achieve these five goals, that's all I need to be happy. And here were the five goals I set for myself. Number one was to have a great career helping people. Number two was to have um, wonderful friends. Number three, to have a fabulous, loving husband or partner. 
Number four, a comfortable home. And number five, the equivalent of Halle Berry's body. (laughs) (laughs) And I got four out of the five. I don't have Halle Berry's body. And I still wasn't happy. It didn't do it. So this is when I learned that success was not going to bring me what I thought I needed. These outer things weren't going to do it. And I know I know we have to go to a break in a minute, and, and I, I, I have another piece of the story I want to tell. Should I save it for after the break? Well, we, you know, we've got about a minute and a half, so how big a piece oh, no, is it? It's going to take longer than that. So, All right, we, well, then let's save it till until after the break. I was going to say, Marcy, uh, so uh, what happened? You didn't get the house that you really love because you got everything else? No, but that's thank all, you. <laughs> So Pardon? sweet of you. I, I I will tell the second half of this after the break, but I will tell you, and this is a little bit of a teaser, it really was the second turning point for me, and I think it's a really important one for what I see most people experiencing. I think most people who are listening and, and most people that I speak to, they've also set goals for themselves, and they've achieved some of those goals. And yet they still find that it hasn't brought them that juiciness, that happiness that they were really looking for. And so, you know, that's really kind of where I think we are as a society is we're kind of waking up to the fact that those those goals are are good things, but they aren't going to bring us what we really want. Then it's about time we wake up, I say. Almost 30 years ago, we did an infomercial here at Progressive Awareness. It essentially said, you know, success is happiness. It's not the other way around. You know, you you become happy and then you're successful. You don't become successful and then find yourself happy. But all right, exactly. we'll we'll pick up your story when we come back. Don't forget the story. All I right, won't forget it. You I have us okay. Uh, if you like to know more about Marcy and her work, visit her website uh, or check out the links on provocativeenlightenment.com. All right, we have a short film featuring our guests for you today during our break. So if you're not already in our chat room, now's the time to get there. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat and choose the chat room button near the top of the page. We'll be right back after a brief station break. Close your eyes. Imagine your goals and dreams. What's preventing you from accomplishing them? Most often, we are our own worst enemies. I can't. I'm not good enough. It's time to reprogram that inner dialogue. Replace all those negative self-images with, I'm good. I am powerful. I can do anything. Eldon Taylor's Inner Talk patented subliminal technology does just that. Researched at numerous universities such as Stanford and by governments such as Mexico and Germany, Inner Talk has repeatedly been proven effective at changing your self-talk. Stop imagining your goals and make them a reality today. Visit www.intertalk.com. That's I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K.com. Intertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Marcy Shimoff about her life, passions, teachings, and books. But before we get back to the show, I want to invite you to join me on Facebook. I post regularly everything from where I am and what's on next to the latest in science, technology, and consciousness studies. And from time to time, some of my own opinions about the world we live in. And I love your comments and feedback. And Facebook is just a great place for that. So please give me a like and join me on Facebook.com forward slash Dr. Eldon Taylor. That's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now we just played some of your second musical choice, Marcy. Amazing Grace by Cecilia. What's the story on this one? Mm, you know... My life feels like amazing grace. I just feel uh, from where I've come, <laughs> which was deeply unhappy, you know, this depression, this this angst, um, to feeling like I wake up every morning and I feel as though my life is a miracle. And this it, it was really an inner transformation for which I feel such extraordinary gratitude and grace. And it wasn't necessarily an easy journey, and I've definitely lived, um, you know, I, I feel like I've, I, I have been through a lot of um, inner challenges and come out the other side where I just feel solidly filled with gratitude and grace every day. So that's. And I love the Cecilia version of it. It's such a beautiful version. She's got dolphin sounds in the background, and you know, dolphins are just such a great, yeah. um, great, great beings to be with. So that's the story behind that song. I like that too. I was lost, and now I'm found. Yeah, I was lost. I think and we now can all stand that, huh? Yeah. Before the break, you were going to share a story with us. Let's go to the I was. story. So, you know, I mentioned that I thought that the way to get happy was to find, to set goals for myself and achieve those goals. And so I set these five goals, a great career where I was helping people, wonderful friends, a great husband or partner, a nice home, and the equivalent of Halle Berry's body. And as I said, I got four out of the five. I didn't never, never quite had Halle Berry's body, but I had a healthy body. And... None of it worked, and I'll tell you sort of the turning point for me with this. It was in 1998, I had finished writing three Chicken Soup for the Soul books at that point, and all three were on the New York Times bestseller list at the exact same time. They were number one, two, and four on the New York Times wow. bestseller list. I was at the height of my career. I had um, wonderful friends. I was in a great relationship. I was in a comfortable home. I had a healthy body. All everything was clicking, and I had just finished giving a talk to eight thousand people. I had signed five thousand four hundred and thirty-two books at the end of that talk. It took me three days. Wow. My client had hired a massage therapist to massage my hand every thirty minutes, so mm -hmm. I didn't get carpal tunnel syndrome. And I, it was the equivalent of being an author rock star. And you know, it just kind of couldn't get better than this in life, I thought. And at the end of those three days, I went up to my hotel room, which was the penthouse suite that my client had gotten for me, and I plopped onto the bed, and I burst into tears. And I burst into tears because I realized that I had everything that I thought I needed in life to be happy, and I still wasn't. And I could no longer continue to 
um, kind of trick myself or deceive myself into thinking that just one more thing was going to do it. You know, just one more book on the New York Times list, just one more something else, just, you know, a slightly better house or, you know, a slightly better relationship. Just it wasn't going to do it. And that's when I decided I have got to study happiness. I knew how to create success, but success doesn't bring happiness. It's just what you said earlier, and, and, and actually, Eldon, I actually said that exact same phrase in the movie The Secret. I said success doesn't bring happiness, but happiness does bring success. And so I, I, I kind of, this was 1998, and I decided I am going to study happiness. And it was very fortunate because at that time, that's when the whole field of positive psychology, which is the field that studies happiness, it was just starting to get more known. And I began studying uh, positive psychology and what makes people deeply happy. Mm-hmm. And I started practicing it on myself. I made myself the guinea pig. And if something worked, I used it. And if it didn't work for me, I just kind of you know set it aside. And over the last, over the next 10 years, I really um, found everything that worked, or I found, for me, what worked. And I would say that I went from a, a D-plus in happiness to an A to an A-minus. You know, it's still a journey, but I really feel, you know, deeply, deeply happy. And, and these days, I, I'd say I, I'm kind of feeling a solid A. And, you know, I don't say that in any way to brag at all. I say that uh, hopefully just to uh, inspire people that, you know, you can, doesn't matter where, where you came from, you can raise your happiness set point. And there's a lot of science behind that. And there's, you know, there's some really clear, specific things. And certainly, Eldon, it's, are the things that you teach um, that, that you know that we can raise our happiness set point. And, and so I really only, I, I speak this not as, um, you know, as a researcher, although that is what I've done as well as I've researched this, but I speak it from my own personal experience and now from the experience of the thousands of people that I've shared it with. And that, to me, is exciting. Honestly, to me, this should be headline news, that we know what it takes to be happier, and it's not rocket science. It should be taught in every school. It should be taught everywhere. It's the thing that people want more than they want anything, is to be happy. We know how to get it, and yet we're not we're not teaching it. You know, I saw a post on Facebook just this morning about the things not taught in school. You know, you're not taught how to be happy. Right. You're not taught how to talk to someone who's dying. You're not taught, you know, what this... The most important things, That's, I guess uh, I'll save the whole story, the most important things in life are, are the things that very generally... We're not taught. I, I want to get into the you know specificity now of what you have taught, but before I do, I have to ask you this: If you're like most people, you've had um, you know you've you've got your role, you 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 think you've worked it out, and uh, and now everything is going, and then something just cuts the struts out from underneath you. Yeah. You have that dark moment. You have that trying time when you want to throw your hands in the air and say, "That's it, I quit." That ever occur to you? Oh yeah, ooh yeah. I've definitely had my dark nights of the soul. Um, Flush it out know, for us, please. Well, for me, it's been generally around relationships and the endings of relationships. Um, my biggest dark night of the soul came in uh, it was 1987, 
and I had just ended a two-year relationship. It was a great relationship. I really loved um, the man. His name was Bob. His name still is Bob. <laughs> and he, uh, we broke up only because I felt that there was somebody else for me to be with, and that we weren't life partners, and I thought that, you know, I needed to create a vacuum to bring in the right life partner. So it was very, very painful. Um, and, you know, with, <laughs> what made it more painful was within a couple of weeks of us breaking up, he met, uh, he met another woman who was a friend of mine, a woman named Holly, and they got together. And, you know, I, I didn't particularly want to be in a relationship with him, but I didn't want anybody else to be in one with him either. <laughs> it was, my, it was the, the ultimate of my jealousy rearing its head and it it put me into his tailspin and I just went into this deep deep pain that was kind of beyond what the circumstances warranted you know it was this just primal pain of feeling abandoned and rejected and you know obviously it wasn't the circumstances that brought that up but it just triggered some old more primal pain and um, it was it took a lot of sort of deep inner work to to move past that and um, and I think that there's two ways to look at our challenges or crises. And one way is to go, this is awful, it's horrible, I hate it, I'm a victim, um, why is this happening to me? Or there's the way that I've seen the people who are happiest look at challenges and crises. And that is, this is a friendly universe. You know, the universe is on our side and wants the best for us. Einstein has a beautiful quote. He said, the most important question you can ask yourself is, is this a friendly universe? And the people who say, yes, this is a friendly universe. Now, that doesn't mean I understand why awful things happen. It doesn't mean that I understand a Holocaust or I understand suffering or, you know, I understand terrible things. But I have a certain underlying faith that God is on my side or that the universe is on my side. And so if something bad is happening to me right now, that I believe it's somehow for my highest good. And in that, I look for the lesson or the gift in it. And again, I don't want to sound Pollyanna, because it doesn't mean that it doesn't feel painful, but it means that I, instead of feeling like a victim and things are terrible and, you know, I just have to, why is this happening to me? That I, I, I lean into the feeling of something good is happening for me in this and I don't see what it is right now. Let me look for that. You know, I have to share something with you. Years ago, I had a, well, I was changing careers. I was basically moving from being a pretty, a rather devout atheist and um, a very suspicious, paranoid kind of criminalistic uh, uh, expert, criminalist, yeah, not criminalistic, criminalist uh, expert, Mm -hmm. and to to the general venue that I'm in now. And, uh, and in order to make that change, you know, like you, I was seeking some, some advice. And I had a, a mentor that said to me, you know, Eldon, uh, everything in the universe comes to you for some good. And I had difficulty accepting that. But so she said to me, look, the next time something bad happens, just say to yourself, you know, I can't wait to see what good comes from this. And by doing that, you'll disarm the negative and you'd be surprised at, at how quickly you can find good. I tell you, Marcy, I left her office. <clears throat> I went to my office. And as I pulled into the parking lot in my office, an automobile sitting in front of a restaurant was in and my office was in this horseshoe shaped uh, um, plaza. 
uh, a restaurant sitting in the center of that that you had to pass. A car backed out of that restaurant, slammed into the side of my brand-new Cadillac Eldorado Duets. I literally did say, oh, I can't wait to see what good comes from this. <laughs> I got out of the car. There was an older gentleman in the rig that backed into me, and it was a, it was a jalopy, a run-down jalopy. He was shaking a finger and waving at me, accusing me of hiding my car behind him so he would back into it. The ah. most ridiculous thing I ever heard. You know, at the time, I might have become enraged if I hadn't have, you know, changed that frame. So it turned out there were two law enforcement officers that were coming out of the restaurant, saw the whole thing. I ended up in the one car with the one, and he in another car uh, with, the, with the other. And, uh, you know, I uh, myself and the officer that was taking my information, we were roaring at what this guy was accusing me of doing, you know. I think back on that today. You know, of course, the car got fixed. Uh, insurance covered everything. That one little secret was a major shift in my life, a real life, touchable, here it is. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to see the world any other way than what good can come of everything that happens to you. It just doesn't make any other sense. I love that story, Eldon, because it's such a perfect example of, you know, and even if, you know, you kind of suspended judgment on the the idea. You said, okay, I'm just going to test it out, right? Right. You didn't necessarily believe it at the time. I didn't, no. And and it works if you just even do it that way. You just play with it, you know. I, I tell people, use your life as an experiment and just play with what, play with it and see if that works for you better and um and so have you applied that to hard things really oh, hard yes things. yes truly hard things and uh, and again to me you know maybe i'm sometimes too left brain have to have too much evidence or you know too scientific but the fact of the matter is i'm also a pragmatist mm-hmm. and when you find things that work they just simply work and when you can see that the workable side of this so far outweighs, um, you know, throwing anything against it, you know, that that it's just an exercise in nonsense, like mental calisthenics to oppose the idea, um, then you you know your life changes. I mean, I look at I look at everything today and say, okay, look, body has uh, essentially two budgets analogous to a government. It has defense, and, of course, it has growth. Well, listen, if I'm going to get upset because something bad happened, this person backed into me, you know, he just, my new car, he did damage the passenger door. I don't even know if I can open the door now, you know. I mean, how long am I going to be without a car? I mean, how long is it going to be in repair? If I'm going to go through all of that mental angst, uh, what I've really done is put my body on defense, you know, mm-hmm. all of the neurochemicals pouring into my system, the catecholamines and so forth. They're the ones that shut down the optimal operation of my endocrine immune and ANS. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a great way to punish yourself? When if, on the other hand, I can just simply look at it with that little magic bullet, well, I have everything to gain and nothing to lose. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I, I love how you're able to just put that whole scientific bent on what's going on when you 
you know, when you when you do these practices or when you look at life in this different way. Well, one of the things that I love about your books, you know, how you've gone about discovering what it is that, you know, it takes to make us happy. And I want to go there now. In your book, Happy for No Reason, you basically tell us that uh, happiness is a birthright, that that uh, we don't have to have a provocation or a cause to be happy. Flesh that out. What do you mean we don't have to have something to be happy? I mean, are we supposed to just be giggling like we were infants and somebody mm-hmm. was tickling our toes? Right. So, great question. Happy for no reason does not mean that we're in some Pollyanna state of denial or we're walking around 24-7 in some la-la land. It means that we have an inner state of peace and well-being that doesn't depend on our circumstances. And so most of us have been trained to, we've grown up in a culture where our happiness is dependent on something. I'll be happy when, or I'll be happier when. This is our basic myth in our culture. I'll be happier when I have a better job, or I'll be happier when I have more money or whatever it is. I'll be happier when I'm married or I'll be happier when I'm divorced. And these are what I call happy for good reason. There's nothing wrong with being happy because, except that that because is always going to change. We live in a totally changing universe. And if our happiness is dependent on any one thing, it's just not, it's not true lasting happiness. The only true lasting happiness is this state that I call happy for no reason, where it's an inner state of peace and well-being. And it's something that we can develop, and this is what science is actually showing us. Science has found that we all have this thing called a happiness set point. I mean, it's not a thing, it's a state. We all have a happiness set point. And that no matter what happens to us, whether it's good or bad, we will hover around this happiness set point. We will return to our happiness set point unless we do something consciously to raise it. So a couple of examples of that are if you win the lottery, you're happier generally for a few months, up to about a year. But within about a year, you'll return to your original happiness set point. And the same is true of people who have tragedies happen to them. You know, People who become paraplegic, for example. Within a year, they often return to their original happiness set point. So that set point is king, And the set point is 50% genetic. You're born with that. It's 10% our circumstances, such a tiny, tiny piece of the whole pie. And the other 40% is our habits of thoughts and behavior. And I'll take it a step further and say that there's, you know, people in the field of epigenetics who, you know, Dr. Bruce Lipton, the biology of belief, who say that even our genes, that genetic 50% piece, is influenced by our habits of thoughts and behavior, which to me says that up to 90% of our happiness set point can be changed when we change these habits of thoughts and behavior. And and Eldon, I, I know this is very much what you speak about and, and teach about and write about. So this is this is it. We've got this in our hands, our ability to raise our happiness set point. Now, Marcy, I have to ask this out of qualification. You know, Marcus Aurelius was, uh, you know, probably the first person I know to overtly espouse a state of happiness because to have any other emotion was, uh, 
you, you know, it was self-destructive. Uh, in a very real sense, Aurelius, uh, you know, is a Stoic. You're you're not talking about Stoicism per se when you're talking about happy for no reason, are you? Absolutely not. I don't think, again, this is one of those cases where I don't think we are being mutually exclusive. I'm not saying that you have to have no happiness for good reason in order to have happy for no reason. You know, in other words, right, you can right. have both. And that, to me, is kind of why we're here. We're here to have an inner state of happiness, peace, and well-being that is also reflected in our outer uh, experience of life. Okay, now you have some very direct ways that people can change their or raise their happiness set point. Um, Let's see, I guess we've got about a minute and a half here before the next break. Give us uh, an idea of what these uh, methods are. Maybe you can just give us three or four of them, and then we'll we'll unpack them when we come back. From okay, what I'll do is I'll give you an overview of, of the seven main areas. I created an cool. analogy called building your inner home for happiness. And yeah. a home has seven elements. It's got a foundation, four corner pillars, a roof, and a garden. So here are the seven elements of your inner home for happiness. The foundation is taking responsibility for your happiness. You've got to own that you have the ability to change your happiness. The the four corner pillars are the pillar of the mind, the heart, the body, and the soul. So what you think, how you feel, how you, you know, treat your body and your spirit. And then the roof is your purpose or passion in life. Are you living an inspired life? And the garden is who you surround yourself with. Are you surrounding yourself with? Roses and gardenias, those inspiring and uplifting people, or do you have a lot of weeds in your garden, the negative people that are dragging you down? So those are the seven elements, and we can go more deeply into that uh, however you want. Yeah, I'd love to. When we come back from the break, we'll do just that. I'd encourage you all to visit Marcy's website, happyfornoreason.com. Uh, it's an excellent resource. I, I recommend her books, of course. She, she stands up for what she says, so she's one of my people. She walks her talk, and I do genuinely appreciate that. We hope you are enjoying our show today. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes and take your calls. If you have a question for Marcy, now's your opportunity, so do call in. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up next. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Have you talked to yourself lately? What does that inner voice say? Are you constantly hearing negative feedback? Ready for a change? Inner Talk, Elton Taylor's patented subliminal technology, can do just that. Change your inner self-talk. Turn off the negative by replacing it with positive affirmations. InnerTalk has been researched at universities such as Stanford and by governments around the world and has been proven effective at priming your self-talk. Armed with a new positive outlook, you'll find everything becomes easier. From losing weight to stop smoking, giving presentations to riding horses, learn new things to being a powerful salesperson. Choose your title for change today. Visit www.innertalk.com. That's I-N-N-E-R. T-A-L-K.com Intertalk.com Now, back to the show. 
And that's Natalie Cole singing Everlasting Love. I could get lost in Natalie Cole. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Marcy Shimoff about her life, teachings, and passions. We will take your phone calls in this half hour. So if you have questions of our guests, either give us a call or submit your questions in our chat room. Ravinder and her team are there to put your questions forward, so don't miss out on the opportunity. Okay, Marcy, we just played some of Everlasting Love by Natalie Cole. So why is this important music for you? Marcy? Oh, yep, I'm here. You're here. (laughs) I had you on mute, sorry. Oh, that's all Um, right. I bet you haven't had anybody pick that song before. Is that right, Eldon? Never have, no, but I'll tell you, I could listen to Natalie Cole all day long. So why? You know, I picked that song, and there are so many others. I mean, I also love... um, the Louis Armstrong song, It's a Wonderful World. Oh, my oh, God, I love that my song. my favorite. Yeah. yeah, I almost picked that. But the reason that I picked this song instead is, first of all, I just wanted to throw in some lightness and fun in here. I love dancing. I love moving. I feel like, you know, this is a song that gets me moving, gets the energy going, and I just, it makes me happy. And also, I love the song because uh, the words, you know, I grew up, being a hopeless romantic, everlasting love, wanting that one love that was going to completely complete me and fulfill me. And I have since really, really had the experience of falling, having that one love be me, <laughs> having that love, one love be the divine, having that one love be life. And so it's kind of a song for me that has symbolized my journey. Not, not that I also don't totally believe in having... Um, you know, a fabulous partnership love, but right. that also the ultimate love is the love of, you know, universal love, love of love of life, love of the divine, love of self. So that that's that's why that song for me, and it also, it, you know, love being able to feel like I want to get up and dance. Well, now, your explanation has begged a couple of questions, because, of course, obviously, you know, we want to know what your message is and who the messenger is and how we can use that. That's what these interviews are all about. So what what is your personal relationships like now? Uh-huh. Great. Um, you know, this is, <laughs> this is always an area of growth for me. And um, I have had wonderful relationships in my life. I've had really wonderful relationships. Um, I have fabulous friends. I just have always been blessed with a just a very, very phenomenal group of deep sort of soul soul brothers and sisters, soul family, as well as my own birth family. Um, and so I'm, I love that. And in terms of partnership, uh, I've had wonderful uh, boyfriends throughout my life. I was married. I was married for 10 years, and my ex-husband, Sergio, is a fabulous man. Um, we love each other very, very much. And um, in fact, we just got back from a, we, we got divorced in 2009, right as I was writing the book, Love for No Reason, which was about the inquiry into the question of, can you love no matter what? Can you be in a state of love no matter what? And, you know, there's a saying, be, beware of what you're going to write about because you'll get tested in it. And yeah. here I am writing a book on love love for no reason, and no sooner had I signed the contract on it than Sergio and I decided to get divorced. And um, and during that same period of time, uh, I had four friends pass away 
quite close in succession, and then my mother died very unexpectedly. So I really got to test that question of, can you live in a state of love even in the midst of great loss? And uh, and certainly I felt a lot of loss, but I also felt a lot of expansion of love. So anyway, my ex-husband and I just returned last week from a trip together to India. So um, I think that um, uh, the forms that love takes uh, are very individual and... You know, I, I just don't know anybody else's life path. I know I've had a fairly unconventional life path in that I haven't, you know, had the one one relationship that I've had for 30 years with, you know, a couple of kids, which I understand, you know, Eldon, you do get the pleasure of having, and I think that's wonderful. And I just think we're each here for different lessons, and they come in different ways. I think you're absolutely right. So you're back on the market. I mean, last week, Caroline Sutherland actually pitched on the show for what she was looking for, even gave us the age, somewhere between 65 and 72. So Marcy Shimoff is back on the market. Is that it? We may turn this into a dating service show. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I would say the answer is yes. All right, let's let's go back to your seven elements. Uh, you were going to unpack that for us. I'd have you do that if you would. Well, gosh, you know, there's um, we could spend you know a day on each one of those. Um, I, you know, I will speak about the one that I'll speak very briefly about the one that has to do with um, the body. And I think people, a lot of people, think that happiness is all just I'm going to make up my mind and I'll be happy, and that's all there is to it. And I do think there's a physiological element to it. You know, certainly happiness is a physiological state. There's Happier people have different brain activity. They have different heart rhythms. They have different biochemistry. Uh, I was low in serotonin most of my life. So I think that some of the things that I did to raise my serotonin levels have been tremendously helpful. And and I'm talking non-pharmaceutical ways, herbal ways, or even things like there's a beautiful practice called a sunning meditation that I learned to do that helps re uh, it, it really re-sparks the serotonin and melatonin in, in you. And I'll, I'll just describe it very briefly. And that is that you, um, with closed eyes, and I'm going to say that five times because I cannot emphasize that enough, with your eyes closed, you look up at the sun and allow the sun to come through your closed eyelids and take in the sun, which is going to help to build your serotonin. And you do that for two to three minutes a couple of times a day. And if you do that for a few weeks, it really resets your serotonin and your melatonin, and melatonin helps you sleep better. So there are certain, you know, really clear, specific things that you can do. I use that only as an example of something that you can do to help physiologically change your happiness set point. Okay, Marcy, we've got some questions out of the chat room, so I'm going to hold sure. some of mine, and I'm going to go to those, all right? Okay. Uh, Mark would like to know, let's see, please ask Marcy what her definition of happiness is. Is it an emotion or more? Mm, it's a great question. It is not an emotion. It's a state. It's an inner state of peace and well-being that doesn't depend on your circumstances or your emotions. So in other words, 
you can be in this state of happy for no reason. And, you know, to be honest, it's semantics, but some people might call that the state of enlightenment or the state of awakening. And you can still have momentary fluctuations of anger, of sadness, of grief. You know, somebody dies, you're going to feel grief. But you have underlying that grief this backdrop of peace and well-being that is lasting and imperturbable. I hope that answers that question. No, I think that's a marvelous answer. Indeed, uh, I was going to ask you, uh, in your view, do you feel that the foundation for that you know, necessarily, I guess I'm going to put necessarily, not contingently, necessarily involves a perspective that transcends physical life as we know it. The mm-hmm. spiritual embodiment must be a component. Well, I can only tell you what I've seen. And at this point, I've probably interviewed over a thousand people. Mm-hmm. on happiness. I, you know, my, I, I started off calling them my happy 100 because I interviewed 100 of them, but now I need to call them my happy 1,000 since it doesn't have quite that ring to it. And <laughs> what I've seen is with everybody who has this deep kind of feeling of happiness, experience of happiness, I should say, they, there is a, a, a spiritual component to their life. There is some kind of deeper connection to a greater energy in the universe, if you will. Um, I have not seen somebody who has that deep happiness that doesn't also have that feeling. Now, that doesn't mean that they have a specific spiritual practice, right. although many of them do. In fact, most of them, I would say, have some kind of a daily spiritual practice that allows them to continue to feel that connection to the divine or the greater energy of the universe. For what it's worth, I remember a centurion study, was, I guess it's probably now um, half a dozen years old, where um, looking at the new, uh, you know, people turning 100 years of age, which was, at the time was a very fast-growing, I, I would suspect it's still a very fast-growing segment of our population. But the study, you know, set out to find out what the secret to uh, living that long was, and the expectation was there would be a finding consistent with what we know in medical science. I'll put that in quotation marks, medical science. It would be something that, for all intent and purposes, could be defined as self-denial and uh, sacrifice, you know, clean living and, and, uh, and self-denial. And indeed, what they found was that wasn't true. The caricature of these uh, senior citizens could be called the George Burns type. What they had in common was that they were happy and they felt connected spiritually. And uh, that's a remarkable finding, uh, at least if what you're looking for is a direction in life for how I can enjoy my life at an optimal level. Was, yeah, there's, it, w- there's actually a movie out. I'll add to that, if I may. There's a movie out ca- called Happy that I was uh, honored to be the narrator for. And the, dire- the producer, Rocco Bellick, um, director-producer, traveled all over the world finding the happiest people within various cultures, you know, and he uh-huh. was in India and was on the streets of Calcutta. He was in Japan. He was he was the Maasai of Africa. And he found the commonalities amongst these happy people were that they felt connected. They felt connected to a deeper spirituality, and they felt connected to each other. That feeling of being part of humanity and having close relationships, really important. 
Yeah, I would think so. When you when you gave the definition, when you answered Mark's questions the way you did, I felt very strongly that there had to be a bridging platform in there. Okay, Kathy out of our chat room um, says, "Do well." She's talking about you, so I'll just change this. Uh, do you, Marcy, agree with Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Mm. Well, I definitely um, have think it's a very useful um, hierarchy. I don't know that it's linear. You know, I don't know that we absolutely have to get all of our physical needs met completely before we go for our uh, self-actualization needs. I'm not exactly sure about that, but I definitely think in general it's it's a good framework to use. So as far as you're concerned, and I just want to be, you know, clear on this, self-actualization to Maslow is, you know, the moral, the creative, the spontaneous, the problem-solving, the lack of prejudice, the acceptance of the world as it is, that's when we when we meet self-actualization. Is that as you see it? I would say so. You know, I'm not an expert on this hierarchy. I mean, I definitely yeah. know the, the, the basics, but I, I think that I would say that. What I do know from the happiness research is that they found that... Um, that you do need to get your your happiness set point is to some degree contingent upon money, but only to the extent that your um, that you can base, take care of your basic needs. That once your basic needs are met for food and shelter, that after that, no amount of money will really make a difference. So it's um, you know you could look at the people on the Forbes uh, wealthiest list, and you would find that they are more depressed than the average population. Um, so no amount of money over that basic needs on the, on Maslow's, Maslow's hierarchy really makes a difference in happiness. Right. Okay. You you have a, a bit of a line. I, I guess it is a line that you use, and I like the line. I'm going to ask you why you use it and what it's supposed to mean. You tell mm-hmm. people, don't believe everything you think. Right. Well, this is totally up your alley. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we have... They Some say we have 60,000 thoughts a day, 80% of them are negative. It's just the negativity bias that we inherited from our cavemen ancestors, and just because you have a thought doesn't mean you have to believe that it's true. It's just a thought. It's just part of one of the you know neural pathways that have been formed. So um, what I, I, I have seen is that it's very useful to change those neural pathways and to you know introduce new new ways of thinking and and also new ways of feeling. So, you know, one aspect of it is our thoughts. The other aspect of it is our feelings. And I, I know we're running out of, of time here. I, I'm wondering if we have time for me to share one more quick story. Oh, we do, we do, we do. Please do share. I mean, that's what that's what this show is about. That's, you know, we, we take a little extra time to get an in-depth picture. So when somebody says, I'd like to know about Marcy Shimoff, we can say, go to Provocative Enlightenment, listen to her interview. Oh, great. Well, I, 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 I and I, I share this story not because, I, I share this story because I think it's, it's a very relevant story for all of us, and it has to do with happiness. And I think people ask me, is there a fast track to happiness? And I'd have to say that um, it's individual for every person, but if there's one universal thing that we all can do, it's, it's forgiveness. I think forgiveness really is the fast track to experiencing, uh, to raising our happiness set point. And 
There are many forgiveness practices out there. The one that I've liked using is a simple practice called Ho'oponopono, and it's a a lot easier to do than it is to say. It's uh, based on a kahuna Hawaiian practice of um, repeating these four phrases internally to yourself. It's not about going and saying you forgive the other person. It's about repeating them to yourself, and they are, I'm sorry, please forgive me, thank you, I love you. And I, I, I just want to share the story of how I used that in my life and the huge impact that it's made for me. I, I've used it in many circumstances. But the one that was the most important to me was, um, uh, at this point it's probably about five years ago now, when my sister and I got in an argument and we weren't talking to each other. And this had never happened in our family, so it was pretty extreme and, and uncomfortable. And uh, about four months into the silent treatment, we had to, our whole family got together to move our mother from her family home where she'd lived for 58 years to assisted living. And the morning of the move, we all gathered at her new apartment to unpack her things. And I arrived last, being very nervous about having to see my sister. And when I came in, I hugged everybody hello except my sister. I ignored her, and she ignored me. And we went through the whole morning like that and you could cut the tension with a knife you could just feel it in there everybody it was very tense and after a full morning of this i couldn't take it anymore and i decided i'm going to the car to take a break and i'm going to go meditate or something so as i was walking to the car i remembered ho'oponopono and i thought okay that's what i'll do i'll just do this so i sat in the car for for a while and i just sent her these phrases i'm sorry please forgive me thank you i love you and then also towards myself And after about seven minutes of doing this, my heart broke wide open, and I felt this wave of love come over me, and I just, I felt all this compassion towards my sister, and I realized she wasn't mad at me for what had happened a few months earlier, but it was a lifetime of stuff, and I understood her point of view. And so I went back into the apartment feeling so different, but I didn't say anything to anybody. Well, three minutes into being back, my sister comes over to me, Elton, out of the blue, takes me by the hand and says, come on, let's go into mom's closet and unpack her things together, as though nothing had happened. An hour later, we're at lunch, and she hands me her baked potato and says, here, have mine. I know you like these more than I do. I was so shocked by this that I pulled my brother aside, and I said, okay, what did you say to her while I was gone? And he said, Marcy, no one said anything to her. We have no idea what's just happened. Well, Eldon, that was the beginning of an entirely different relationship that I now have with my sister. Um, You know, it was completely different now. And thank God this happened when it did, because nine months later, my sister and I found ourselves standing in that very same closet of our mother's. But this time we were packing up mom's things because she had just died unexpectedly. And I can't imagine what that would have been like had my sister and I still held on to that anger. And so I I tell you this because I know that everybody listening has someone or something that they're still holding out, you know, some little anger. And it could even be towards themselves. And so this is a simple practice that I offer. And again, I suggest use your own life as an experiment. Don't take my word for it. And just see what happens if you do this, just simply in your heart, sending these four phrases, I'm sorry, please forgive me, thank you, I love you. It's an incredible story. Incredible story. 
Well, while we're talking about forgiveness, and, and I share with you your passion, I, I have said many, many times the beginning place for uh, self-help, self-improvement, self-actualization, becoming aware, awake, anything. The beginning place is forgiveness. Uh, and, and for all intent and purposes, my work in the prison systems, you know, is evidence of that. Repeated double-blind studies have shown that, you know, th- that is the path. But that's not my question. My question goes to this. In relationships, personal relationships, there's often uh, a sense that, uh, you know, I need to pay attention to your needs and they should perhaps trump my own needs. And and when you talk about love for no reason or happiness for no reason, do you ever get uh, the take or the spin on that that it's, uh, it's selfish? No, do I love that question. Uh, I do, in fact, get that a lot, and especially from women. You know, I, what I've seen is that women have been trained to put everybody else's needs in front of their own, and, of course, then they say, people ask, well, isn't this selfish? You want to be happier, but what about what about everybody else? What about the rest of the world? And here's my take on this, Eldon. The biggest thing we can do for our families, for our communities, and for our world is to raise our own happiness set point. We influence everybody around us. There's this phenomenon called emotional contagion. and It says we catch yep. the emotions of the people around us like we catch their cold. And so yep. when you're happier, you're sending that out to the world. And I, I, I know we're close, close on time, but I just, if I may share 30 seconds of my favorite quote of all time. That's about what we have. Great. It's a Chinese proverb, and it goes like this. It says, when there is light in the soul, there will be beauty in the person. When there is beauty in the person, there will be harmony in the house. When there is harmony in the house, there will be order in the nation. And when there is order in the nation, there will be peace in this world. And my prayer, my wish for every one of us is that we experience that light in our own lives. And through that, we help create more peace on this planet of ours. What a beautiful close. You know, Marcy Shimoff, it has indeed been a pleasure to have you share with us so openly today. We're very glad that you uh, could join us. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest and all of you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. And remember, if you have comments on our show, do please let us know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember uh, what Marcy said, and believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at eldentaylor.com.